Welcome to the Paperback Show. I'm your host, Ricky Lee Grove, and in today's episode, we'll be looking at the author Dashiel Hammett and the origins of the hard-boiled paperback. By the way, I correctly pronounced Hammett's middle name. His first name was Samuel, but nobody I know pronounces it that way, so we're going to go with the traditional Dashiel for the rest of the show. And along with my returning guest, Richard Brewer, we'll be focusing on what many consider to be Hammett's masterpiece novel, The Glass Key. Although Hammett didn't start the hard-boiled novel tradition, that credit goes to John Carroll Daly, he did, however, define the style by elevating the hard-boiled novel to the status of literature. Now, personally, I'm not so sure about that, but I do know he wrote in a way that was new, and his novels are immensely entertaining. Every mystery author owes Hammett a debt of gratitude for the setting the standards so high. So stay tuned, and after a short musical interlude, we'll be back with a brief biography of hard-boiled author Dashiell Hammett. Samuel Dashiell Hammett was born on his father's general store in Great Mills, Maryland in 1894. He was the middle child with an elder sister and a younger brother. His father was of common stock, but his mother was from an old Maryland family whose name in French was Deschiel, hence Hammett's middle name. In his early years, he was simply known as Sam. He grew up primarily in Philadelphia and Baltimore, and he dropped out of school at the age of 14. But he was a great reader all of his life. In essence, he was self-taught. Sam hated his father and was indifferent to his siblings, but very close to his mother, Anne. Sam's father was a poor parent, spending a good deal of time chasing women, wearing fancy clothes, and scrambling for money. It's ironic that Sam would become much like his father in later years. A moody and introspective young man, Sam moved unhappily from job to job until he saw an ad in the paper for the Pinkerton National Detective Agency. In becoming an agent, detective, he found a job that matched his personality. The agency was primarily male. It had its own moral code, and he could set his own hours for the most part. He became particularly adept at shadowing a suspect, This life became important in his later years as a writer. In fact, he learned how to write precise reports as an agent. Sam enlisted in the Army in the First World War as an ambulance driver, but he contracted the Spanish flu and later came down with tuberculosis, a malady that would affect him his entire life. While recovering from the flu at an Army hospital, he met and married nurse Josephine Dolan, it would bear two daughters for Sam Hammett. Due to Hammett's tuberculosis, he had to live apart from his wife and children, but did his best to support them. In order to make money, he wrangled with the Veterans Administration, a battle he would continue all his life for a disability. Since Hammett was often sick, he couldn't work as a detective or find other jobs for support, so he turned to writing. Initially, he found success with the Slicks, the more expensive upper-class magazines, but even then the pay was ridiculously low, so he turned to the pulps. 
His initial stories were based on his experience as a Pinkerton agent. He created a nameless private investigator, the Continental Op, for Black Mask magazine. He was known for his authenticity and realism of his stories in Black Mask. This pulp magazine was the center of a new type of mystery story, one that attempted a higher level of realism, especially in the people and characters. He depicted the lower strata of society and in the dialogue, real street-level speech. It also differed from much of the naturalist fiction of the time in that there was little sympathy for the characters and their horrific circumstances. Hammett read Black Mask regularly and knew what kind of writing they were looking to buy. Before he stopped writing fiction for good in 1934, he had written 80 short stories, primarily with Black Mask. But Black Mask only paid one cent a word for stories, and it wasn't enough to support a family. So he quit writing briefly and worked for an advertising agency, even went so far as to take a business course. But a relapse in his tuberculosis caused him to be hospitalized and he had to quit. Hammett was lured back to Black Mask by a new editor, Joseph Shaw, who encouraged him, and paid him more money, to write longer pieces. In the summer of 1926, Hammett wrote his first novel, which was serialized in Black Mask. This novel was titled Red Harvest. It was very well received by readers of the magazine. And encouraged by Shaw to submit the novel to the publishing slush pile, he sent the manuscript to Knopf, a publisher of hardbacks. Luckily, the editor, Blanche Knopf, the first female editor-publisher of the time, saw great promise in his work, and after some editing, Hammett originally called the novel Poisonville. It was published in 1929 to universal acclaim. Four novels by Hammett were published in four years with Knopf. The Dane Curse, The Maltese Falcon, The Glass Key, and The Thin Man. Each novel sent critics and readers into a frenzy of praise, which, of course, brought Hollywood and money. Hammett's life turned around, and his health improved. Unfortunately, Hammett spent his money as fast as he made it. He drank relentlessly, slept with prostitutes, and gained a reputation for not being reliable. The money, the fame, and the attractions of Tinseltown turned him into a Jekyll and Hyde character. Most likely, he felt incredibly guilty for his behavior, which caused him to start drinking and on and on in an endless cycle. No wonder he developed a nihilistic philosophy of life. No God, no meaning to life. It was all chance. His marriage to Josie long ago fell apart, although he continued to send her money and visit during lucid moments, and she was devoted to Hammett, never remarrying during her entire life. However, at one point, he failed to send her money for over seven months, and she wrote to Blanche Knopf asking for money. He would alternate tremendous generosity with neglect of his family. Still another reason to feel guilty and to drink. Hammett never wrote another novel or short story for the rest of his life. His daughter Joe said that he never stopped trying to write novels. He just could never finish them. And since he'd had such a claim as an author of hard-boiled novels and stories, 
It must have hurt him deeply not to be able to finish any fiction writing he started. Successful films and radio dramas were made from his novels, and he made a lot of money. The Maltese Falcon, directed by John Huston and starring Humphrey Bogart, became an iconic hard-boiled mystery film and brought Haben more money than he could have ever hoped for. Although he wrote screenplays and screen treatments, he was often drunk and missed deadlines and meetings. Studio heads grew frustrated with Hammett, and he was so broke that he asked for advances and loans all the time. It was during this Hollywood years that the author met Lillian Hellman, who became his on-and-off companion for the rest of his life. He helped her edit, write plays like The Little Foxes and The Children's Hour, which made her rich and famous. She bought a large farm out into the country, which became a retreat for both her and Hammett. Hammett went on to, quote, write, unquote, the screenplay for Watch on the Rhine in 1942, which received an Academy Award nomination. After a nervous breakdown and a recurrence of his tuberculosis, he finally went on the wagon and started to become an activist in left-wing politics. He was recruited into the Communist Party in 1937, although he always thought of himself as a Marxist. He certainly was a strong anti-fascist, as were many at the time, and served on the board of many left-wing and communist committees in addition to giving speeches and money. When World War II broke out, Hammett, aged 48, managed to enlist despite his medical condition and was sent to the Aleutian Islands, where he thrived in an all-male community and the military's strict rules and regulations. He edited a paper and co-authored, he essentially rewrote the initial draft, The Battle of the Aleutians, which is the military history of the area. It was a happy time in his life, although he did develop emphysema. After the war, he resumed his political activities, along with a hedonistic lifestyle of drinking to excess, sleeping with prostitutes. He developed gonorrhea, something that he contracted throughout his life, and eventually became hospitalized in New York. Hellman got him into the hospital, where the doctors told him that if he kept drinking, he'd be dead in several months. Pulling himself together, he quit drinking for the rest of his life and began to recover his stability at Hellman's farm. He also began to see more of his wife and now-grown children. His wife, Josie, stayed with Hammett his whole life, even though he spent time with Hellman and other women. Hammett introduced his children to Hellman with mixed results, as Hellman wanted Hammett to divorce Josie and marry him. It's interesting to note that Hellman also slept with other men and tried to leave Hammett several times. Hammett would occasionally beat her black and blue, but she always came back. After the war, there was an anti-communist frenzy in American politics, and many left-wing artists, writers, and entertainers were hauled in front of the House Committee on Un-American Activities. Anyone with a whiff of participation in the Communist Party were persecuted. Hammett got caught in the anti-communist machine, and was jailed in 1951 for contempt of court. He refused to name names. He served his time in prison cleaning toilets, and his health further deteriorated. Upon release from prison, the IRS slapped a massive fine on Hammett, around $200,000, because he failed to file income taxes for several years prior. And the IRS put liens on all of his 
income except his veteran's pension. He was essentially penniless, living in a rent-free country cottage provided by friends. Hammett was now a hermit. Eventually, Hammett's health became so bad he couldn't live alone. So he moved in with Hellman and tried to finish a novel, Tulip, he'd been working on for years. He never did finish it. Dashiell Hammett died in 1961 of lung cancer. He was a lifelong smoker and was buried, ironically, in Arlington National Cemetery, primarily because he was a veteran of two world wars. Hellman became his literary executor. She stymied biographers for decades with limited access to Hammett's papers and promoted her own narrative of who Hammett was. And she also promoted his work tirelessly. A nobody at his death, Hammett has been recognized as a major American writer, the author who raised the mystery form to the level of literature. Now let's take a break, and we'll be right back with Richard Brewer and a discussion of Hammett's masterpiece novel, The Glass Key. Good evening. This is Orson Welles. Tonight, under the guidance of an expert, we're going to take an excursion into the underworld of the Prohibition period. Our story is The Glass Key, by an author who is best known as the creator of The Thin Man, Mr. Dashiell Hammett. The Glass Key is, to my way of thinking, one of Dash Hammett's very best. So sit back and let the Campbell Playhouse demonstrate that Mr. Hammett knows far more about underworld plots, political... Well, we're back for the second section of our podcast, and I'm going to introduce my friend Richard Brewer. Richard Brewer last appeared on the paperback show episode three, which was about Raymond Chandler and his novel Big Sleep. Welcome back, Richard. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's great to be here again. Yes. <laughs> By the so, way, did so you, ever, you. you ever finish that audiobook series of Chandler's novels? Yes, we finished all of them. So we've done all the novels and all the short stories uh, that are available now on uh, through Penguin Random House on Audible. And um, I'm telling you, it, it was like a dream job to, to you know, have uh, one of the best narrators um, on the planet, uh, Scott Brick, reading all of them. And just it was great enough to go back and reread them, all yeah. these stories and all these. Stuff. And then you get to this great voice telling you the story. Oh, it's great. like, yeah. So yeah, we finished it and um, very proud of that. Really proud of that. Congratulations. Well, listen, uh, we're going to talk about The Glass Key um, today by Dashiell Hammett. Now, he's the correct pronunciation of his uh, uh, middle name, his first name was Sam or Samuel, is Dashiell Hammett. But I have never in my life ever heard anybody refer to him as Dashiell so we're going to just stick with Dashiell Hammett because that's what yeah. most people say. But um, I'm going to give a brief introduction about the background of uh, the writing of Glass Key and then a short synopsis and uh, a warning for everybody. The synopsis will have a, a few spoilers. So if you don't want to know, it's not exactly a big suspense novel, so it's it won't kill you even if you know. But uh, <laughs> ju just to warn you. OK, here's a little brief background of Glass Key. In 1930, in a letter to writer Herbert Ashbery, he's the writer who wrote The Gangs of New York, Hammett wrote that he had been unable to finish his new novel, The Glass Key, due to, quote, laziness, drunkenness, and illness, unquote. He worked right up to the deadline, including one 
incredible 30 hour writing session, which he said, damn, which funnily enough, he ended up using that as an excuse for, for not being able to write anything else later in his life. He said that 30 hour spree just damaged him as a writer, which I thought was hilarious. He managed to finish the novel on time, though, and the glass key was serialized in Black Mask over March, April, May, and June of 1930. Now, oddly, the first paperback publication was, excuse me, the first hardback publication was in the UK. It was the only one of his novels to be published there as a first edition. Knopf, his hardback publisher, published the novel in January in 1931 to respectful but unenthusiastic reviews, according to his biographer, Richard Lehman. However, today, The Glass Key is considered one of Hammett's two masterpieces, along with The Maltese Falcon, which is the book that preceded it. Now, let me give you just a brief synopsis of uh, the, the Glass Key. It's, uh, it's such a fascinating synopsis because it became the sort of uber text for this kind of novel for the next, well, all the way to the present day, to be honest with you. So the story takes place primarily in an unnamed city. It was modeled after Hammett's Baltimore, uh, where he grew up. Uh, depression area, you have to remember this is uh, the Depression area in 1930, and a bit uh, in New York City of the late 1920s. The Glass Key is uh, ostensibly a love triangle done in a hard-boiled style but i wonder whether it's really a love triangle i think it's more about the relationship between the two men but anyway, i think so too I yeah. agree with you on that. the main story concerns the friendship of ned beaumont the central character who was a gambler and a political advisor to paul madvig a big-time politician and a boss of the city it's election time and a good deal of the plot revolves around Ned Beaumont trying to save Paul's ass in the political arena, which is also filled with gangsters, murder, extortion, and deceit. In fact, the entire world of the novel is one of corruption and duplicity. Paul finds the senator's son murdered on the street, and the evidence points to Paul Madvig. As Ned Beaumont works to find the truth, he encounters the senator's daughter, Janet Henry, who was the main reason Paul at Madvig is supporting this corrupt senator's campaign. Ned Beaumont knows the senator is corrupt, but Paul doesn't care as the senator promised him Janet's hand in marriage if he wins the election. This is never stated in the novel, but it's understood both by Paul and Ned Beaumont. Playing his cards close to the chest, Paul endures cruel beatings by a thug who supports the rival boss in town, one that Paul had set up Paul Madvig had set up earlier. Working various players in the drama against each other, including the district attorney, the editor of the local paper who was publishing Paul Madsvid's, uh, who who's pushing Paul Madsvid's guilt, Ned Beaumont eventually works out who really killed the senator's son. During the course of the story, Ned Beaumont breaks with Paul Madvig, his mentor and friend, and leaves with the senator's daughter who impulsively asks him to go with him. Paul comes in to ask him to stay, but Ned Beaumont indicates Janet, the senator's daughter, and the love of Paul Med Medvig is coming with him to New York. Paul, overwhelmed with the news, leaves with Ned Beaumont staring at the closed door. The Glass Key was written in, uh, uh, the novel was written in 10 chapters, all with titles that describe the action of each chapter. For example, The Body in China Street, The Cyclone Shot, The Kiss Off, those are just a few. And it was made into a movie 
1935 and then in a more famous movie in 1942 with Alan Ladd, Brian Donlevy, and Veronica Lake as the senator's daughter. Orson Welles also did an adaptation of it for radio, and there was a great uh, Studio One version of it was done for live TV. So that's our summation. I wanted to ask you, what did you think of the Glass Key, Richard? Well, it had literally, literally been decades since I'd, I'd read this. Um, and I, I was coming at it pretty much like with fresh eyes. And I would actually, I, well, uh, what did I think about it? I loved it. I really, really enjoyed the hell out of it. Almost more than the Maltese Falcon. Wow, that's saying a lot. Well, and I think, here's, here's my theory on, on why I think that is. I think it's because it had been so long since I read it. I had forgot so much about it that it was like reading, almost like reading a brand new, you know, novel. Right. And um, I just, you know, Sam Spade is Sam Spade. You know, he's the dogged detective of of dubious um, morality, if you will. Um, But I think you heighten that with Ned Beaumont. You know, because you just don't know where this, you don't know where this guy's loyalties are really. You don't know what kind of a, what kind of a person is Ned Beaumont? Mm. I mean, he's a fixer, I guess is what we would call it today. He's smart. He's smart. Um, he seems so opportunistic, but there's a, there is a, a, and I don't, I I don't want to give too much away on this, but there's a loyalty underneath there Right. that, that, that is, um, admirable and, and he's willing to do pretty much anything out of his loyalty. You know, so um, there are certain values that are extremely important to him. Right. He he upholds those. Right. But we see those happen. We don't. It's not like 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 we get it's not like we get an interior monologue of him going, well, I had to turn and look at this guy and think, you know, but it's it's like. um, uh, It's like everything is a means to an end. And in this case, I think you you raise it that it's actually this sort of uh, it's what John Ford called a love story between two men, mm. and I think that that's that's what this is. It's um, it's Ned doing what he can do for his friend, mm-hmm. even if that means <clears throat> even if that means possibly losing that friendship. Yep, because he's doing he's doing it because out of loyalty for him, and yep. he goes through a lot including, as I just said, including basically destroying that friendship. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you raised that point about their feelings because that is a, um, a style um, that uh, Hammett created, especially in uh, Glass Key. And also it was, although, although he wasn't the first person to, to do hard-boiled style, that was John Carroll Daly who preceded him by a couple of years. He's really considered the father of the hard-boiled style because he defined it. And one of the definitions of it for him was he doesn't describe how characters feel. Everything is action. It's what the characters do and say. So the reader is left to figure it out by what they do, by implication. So this loyalty that you're talking about, 
you don't really get a sense of that until at the end of the book when you've been able to add up all of the things that Ned Beaumont has done mm-hmm, and then then yeah. you then you figure it out and you go oh he is being loyal yeah everything was everything was a means to an end right. which is helping his friend yeah even and helping him from himself even yep you know but it's such uh, a curious style not to have because we're so used to the modern style, which is, you know, interior monologues, uh, point of view care uh, situations. Hammond wrote all of this in uh, uh, third person, whereas some of his earlier stuff with the Continental Op was all written in first person. Mm-hmm. And cause some of the uh, uh, his biographers say that he was able to expand the hard boiled novel by moving to a third person because it gives him more range to describe what people are doing and saying ah, as opposed okay, to yeah. just one point of view. But right. I found it fascinating and it made, it made the, the reading experience, a couple of things it did for me, it made it really intense, mm-hmm. you know, and very involving because you want to know what's going on and you're not being told. Right. You know, right. And, and you then, don't have a preconceived notion of, of who Ned is. There you go. That's the that's the other key to his excellence as a writer. Is he doesn't play on stereotypes, or if he does bring up a stereotype, he doesn't write it as a stereotype. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because it's all people are being judged by what they do. So in a way, you're sort of with the author, looking at these characters with the author. Which for me, make it made the reading experience. You said more intense, and I, and I say I. I and maybe intense is the right word. I wanted to just, it's like, I know it's like, I just, I, you know, there's, there's that, that Couldn't get well, through it well, fast enough. What? And, and so many things happen, you know, it, it's that whole, um, where, um, where Ned Beaumont. And I think it's funny because every time he talks about Ned Beaumont, he says, Ned Beaumont, <laughs> you know, yeah, he spells his Ned. name out completely every right. time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's it, there's very um, odd aspects to the plotting of this of, of what happens in the in the in the stream of the thing, you um, you know he he gets uh, he gets kidnapped he gets abducted, and has the sh- the the crap beat out of him, you know. So you have this whole section which is like, well, what is that doing there? But then it fits because it's sort of. As, like you said, at the end of the book, you go, oh, he had to go through that. He had to go through that. that. Yeah. But then you also get a huge section where he's in the hospital. Yeah. And, and, and yet it's all captivating. You keep reading. Yeah. You know, you know. Um, I think if you go back to, to both the movies, the 35 and the, and the 42 version, um, those beatings are brutal. Yep. And they don't, and, and for the times that those movies were made, you really see the, the injury on both Alan Ladd and George Raft. Yeah. You know, the, the barely able to crawl, the, the, the trying to get to the door. Um, and that comes through so well in the book. Yeah. I read well. the book uh, twice. Um, I read it in a small vintage paperback. Random House has the rights to it from the 60s and then i read it in a larger more recent trade paperback the second time and the second time was even better 
even though I knew what the story was about, because it helped me understand a little bit more of how, how Hammett crafted the story. The, the beating which is set up does, is striking because it doesn't come out of the blue, but it's unexpected given the style of everything that you've, all of the scenes that you've read before. Suddenly you're in this intensely brutal situation. And I mean, it's so bad in the novel that at one point, Ned Beaumont finds a rusty razor in the bathroom and tries to commit suicide. Right. Because the, the uh, pain is so bad. Fortunately, he doesn't then, and he gets an idea of how to use the razor in order to escape. But Which is a great scene, in, in, in great scene in that and great scene in the, in the uh, 42 movie. Yes, yes. Um, but it, it, that's a, a, an interesting thing that points out how, how, just how brutal and how realistic the novel is compared to the movie and compared to other novels of the time. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the things that attracted to people. And as you read it, you see that the beating is the climax of the first section of the novel. I had thought about that, but it, yeah. It climaxes in that. And then afterwards, when he survives, it it almost makes Ned Beaumont even more cunning afterwards because he manages to work out and suggest things to other characters to get them to, to reveal themselves. Right. You know right. what I Good mean? Good point. Yeah. 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 Even yeah. now. And that's interesting because even though he isn't a detective, he acts like a detective in many ways. Well, he even says something and there's, he says something about, you know, well, look, I'm not a, I'm not a detective, but I, I'm, I'm piecing things together. Yeah. So, something to that effect. And um, yeah, I think you're right. I think the, the cunningness and, the way he talks to people specifically, you know, um, uh, when he talks to, to the uh, district attorney, uh, far right. And, um, certainly when he talks to Paul and, and, and realizes, you know, when Paul tells him that, uh, he committed the murder. Right. And even in the book, you see it, you can just see that there's a click that happens in Ned's Ned's uh, Ned's head of like, oh, okay, I I, I got I've got I've got more work to do because this isn't right. Yeah, you know, um, you were talking about the brutality of it. Certainly, the brutality between Jeff and Aurori, you know, at the end is just, you know, I just just reread that because I was just sort of boning up on some things, and I just went, holy macanola, yeah. that is, that is, just brutal. Yeah, you know. And, and the fact that, that Ned just stands there, yep. you know, and just, this, you know, this is what I've got to do again. Why does he have to do it? Right. Right. Exactly. Yep. I thought I'd share with you just a short paragraph from the uh, end of the novel uh, to describe um, how Hammett gets you to understand the emotional state of the character without actually saying what it is. He does it through descriptive action. And this is at the end. Um, it's in chapter 10 called The Shattered Key. Towards It's right towards the climax. And uh, uh, it's, it's the second paragraph in uh, chapter 10. And uh, Ned has um, made a phone call. Um, he's on edge. And this is how Hammett describes him. 
He got up from the telephone, staring into space, clapping his hands together noisily and rubbing their palms together. His mouth was a smaller line under his mustache, his eyes hot brown points. He went to the closet and briskly put on his overcoat and hat. He left his room whistling Little Lost Lady between his teeth and took long steps through the streets. Isn't that wow. great? That's great. I mean, he doesn't say that he's upset and he's anxious and he doesn't know how it's going to turn out and he's a little mad. He just describes him as slapping his hands together and rubbing his palms, walking very fast and whistling a tune. Right, 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 right. Yeah, it's it just it sets it all up and and it's all and you're right. It's all action. It's all uh -huh. action. But it's also um, you see that it's the picture of it. You just have it. Um, but it's also it's it's like again things that they say like um, like the senator at the end. I'm going to ask you a favor. Yes. You know, I, I yeah, just I just want a favor from you. And the and again, this is all dialogue. The yep. um, you know, just give me a minute. Give me five minutes. Give me a minute alone up in my room. And Beaumont's just no. Yep. You know, yep. it's, it's in, in, in. And you, can other... under, you can, you can feel the actual, because he not only visualizes the scene because he puts it in place in this interesting house in this little ante room uh, as in this big rich man, rich Senator's house. But he also, you can visualize the two men and having spent so much time with Ned, you sort of understand him, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You see him, you see his perspective, and here's this senator, and they both know what they're talking about. Right. But they don't come out and say it. Right. So it's, in, it's, it's they would call it an actor's term subtext. Right, 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 right. So, so it's played there, and you as the, as the reader, you get it. You know what's mm -hmm. happening, partially because it's been set up to an extent. Yep later on with the with the um with the newspaper publisher yes. so you know so it, it this is the brilliance of that of that aspect of it of, of setup at all so that's happens that that moment with the newspaper pu publisher so that happens five chapters before something like that mm -hmm. and so as the reader you're it's there it's already there it's already there so when they get this um I don't want to use the word cagey. What's the word that I want? Um, this, well, as you said, with the, this, this conversation with all this emotion and subtext that has been planted, you mm -hmm. know, you know, what's going on. And that's, you know, that's a beautiful piece of layering Yep, that Hammett has done. It's one of the things that I think I admire about Hammett that I'd forgotten is what a crafty, what a, what a, well-crafted writer how good of in the craft of writing Hammett was he was a self-taught person so he read voraciously and he obviously had read Hammett he had read Dreiser and Sherwood Anderson and all the other naturalists of the day and when he was working with Hellman later when she was writing Lillian Hellman became his his sort of mistress at first and then long-term distant partner Right. Um, he helped her write the, her plays and he would frequently 
tell her too much. Cut, 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 cut it out. It's too much, too much. And I think that was one of the, his impulses as a, as a writer through his reading and also his his natural understanding of the world that he was living in is that you don't need to over-explain things. Just get it down to its essence, you know? And I think it, it was hard for him to do that because you notice as earlier when I described about the making of this book, he was behind and he had to do this 30-hour writing binge uh, to put it all together. Right. And I think part of that writing difficulty for him, and it was like pulling nails, is that continual honing of scenes, connecting things, honing it down to a, to a work of art. Well, I think that uh, if you look at any uh, hard-boiled detective fiction, I mean, good hard-boiled detective fiction, it's always about cutting it back, mm-hmm. cutting it back cutting back and you see that in Chandler you see that uh again with Hammett you see it with um uh, uh just any of the of the classic hard-boiled detectives James M. Cain James and Cain Mickey Spillane uh, did it a whole bunch of them and I well and I think that anytime you've I've gone to a convention or gone to a writer's conference or anything like that especially with mystery writers um it's always about trying to get to that point mm-hmm it's always like you know is it it's Hemingway right uh, cut 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 your darlings yeah you know yeah. and and but you know, Hammett was the first to do it right and he was the first to do it in such a way that it not only appealed to pulp readers of the time but people like Dorothy Parker was going nuts over his style I mean, the Maltese Falcon people couldn't fall over themselves with superlatives, right? About right. how great this was and how different it was. Well, and you, you know, he created just the classic detective fiction through mm-hmm. that. I mean, yeah, everybody, yeah. everybody, everybody that I know in the, in the field, all they Hammett and Chandler are the are the the inspirations yeah. for the detective. Everybody wants to be that. When I was a kid, and I read Chandler. Um, the next step for me then was, uh, uh, John D McDonald. And it, for me, it was constantly trying to find that first person narrative that could live up to what Chandler had laid. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, it's like, I, I wanted that voice and I had decades of like, I'll try this person. I'll try that because I was looking for someone who could recreate that to some extent. Right. Right. You know, well- I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the uh, background of the novel. Um, Hannah, Love to do that. Can, I, can I interrupt just one thing? Sure, I, have go to bring ahead. Up, I have to bring up one thing. Sure. And I'm, I'm going to go to the 1942 movie. In the book and in the 35 movie, when he confronts uh, Jeff in the speakeasy, right? Yeah. Both times, the um, uh, when he's got the drop on Jeff and he gets up, in the book and in the thirty-five movie, he looks at him and he and he tells Jeff, who's got who he's got a, uh, sitting at a table, don't touch that ketchup bottle. This is right. a ketchup bottle, right? Right. right. In the forty-two movie, Lad is the one who's who's sitting there, and there's a long scene where he's kind of go to, where he and Jeff are having their thing, uh-huh. and Lad plays with that bottle. 
Ah. The whole time he's just, he's spinning it, he's touching it, you know, he's puts his hand on it. And, and it is such a brilliant bit of, of cinematic suspense. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you're just like, what's going to, and finally I had to go back and watch it cause I wanted to, to, to re because I love this scene so much. Um, finally, uh, Jeff kind of makes a little bit of a move and, and lad gla- grasps the bottleneck. Yep. But through that whole thing, you're just waiting for something to happen with that catch ball. And I thought it was, it would be, re- I would love to know the origin of where that came from. Again, like in the book and in the, in the, uh, and in the 35 movie, all it is, 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 Beaumont just says, leave that, leave that ketchup bottle alone to Jeff, who's sitting at the table. Right, right. And, you know, I don't know if it was the director or if it was Ladd or what, but. It was a anybody, nice bit of business. Yeah. It's a, it's a beautiful bit of business. Yeah. It's a beautiful bit of keep you on the edge of your seat because you yeah. think something is going to happen. Yeah. And um, I, I just had to, to throw that in there. I think I was a little more enamored of the 42 movie than, than, than you were. Well, it's the hard boiled. It turned into a soft boiled movies, but we're going to get, we're going to get to discussion of that in a few minutes. I wanted to talk about a few other things first. Yes, please. Mostly about the background of the novel, which you have to remember the depression, 1929 was in full swing. There was a uh, labor movement that was going on. There was a widespread sense of distrust in government. Um, there was a scrabble for money. People were desperate. It was very lean times. Uh, ironically for Hammett, it was a great time. And he made a hell of a lot of money, especially through Hollywood, buying a lot of his stuff. So he didn't suffer for it. But he was a smart fellow and he paid attention to it. And I think that informs a little bit of his worldview and the worldview of the novel, where you can't trust politicians, you can't trust senators, you can't trust the uh, political voting arrangement. Um, and I think that 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 helps to understand why readers of the time were so fond of the books, were so excited about the books. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there's some other interesting things is that in the Maltese Falcon, the book that uh, uh, preceded Glass Key, Hammett has Sam Spade the detective tell a story to Bridget O'Shaughnessy that explains Spade's view of the world. It's called the Flitcraft story after the name uh, of the person that uh, Spade was hired to find. He's hired to find a husband who simply vanished one day at lunch. He had a good wife, child, house, good job. And several years later, he discovers that the, the man, Flitcraft, is living another, ident- another identity with a wife, a house, a good job. And he asks him uh, what happened. And Hammett, uh, Flitcraft explains uh, why he left. And let me read you what he said. Sam Spade says, here's what happened to him. Going to lunch, he passed an office building that was being put up, just a skeleton. A beam or something fell eight or ten stories down and smacked the sidewalk alongside him. It brushed pretty close to him but didn't touch him though a piece of the sidewalk was chipped off and flew up and hit his cheek. It only took a piece of skin off, but he still had the scar when I saw him. He rubbed it with his finger, well, affectionately, when he told me about it. He was scared stiff, of course, he said, but he was more shocked than really frightened. He felt that somebody had taken the lid off of his life and let him look at the works. And in many ways, this is this 
Flitcraft story is a story of Hammett's worldview because he was a nihilist. He didn't believe in God. He didn't believe the power of government. He didn't believe in good society or goodwill. He believed in chance and accident. It's one of the reasons why he cast Ned Beaumont as a gambler. And the, mm. most, and the most important thing to Ned Beaumont, as he says earlier in the uh, novel, is that he has to have luck. He, he can't fail. If he fails, if he doesn't have luck, he's a failure. That's why at the beginning when Paul Madvig is uh, needling him about borrowing money and how he hasn't had any luck for five months, Beaumont says, well, that's me. I stay with it because I know it's going to come around. And when it does, I'm going to get it. Well, certainly he goes into the one game. He goes into a card game and he, and he wins 400 bucks. And what's the last thing that Paul says? Luck. I forget. He says luck. Luck. That's right. He mumbles. He mumbles, he mumbles and, and then he says luck as he, as he walks out yeah. the door. Yeah. Yeah. So in a way, Hammett puts himself in the position of Ned Beaumont and the continental op identity is sort of left behind because there's another detective that Ned Beaumont works with, a young guy named Jack. <laughs> right. And Jack is a kind of continental op. His face is impassive. How many times did you hear him? His face was impassive. Blah, 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 blah. He, did, he goes out and he gets the stuff and he comes back to Ned. You know what right, I mean? Right. So in a way, the glass key was a shift for Hammett to put himself in the novel. Because the way they describe Ned Beaumont, he's very much like tall, thin, had a mustache, just like Hammett, the whole thing. And the Continental Op with him in the form of Jack. Right. The other right, character. Right, right. You know what I mean? Yeah. but it, And it's interesting because, if I remember correctly, Jack is the one who turns him down. Yes. Yes. He's, he's, when he asks him to get info on uh, Paul Madvig. Right. And, he, and he's like, nope. nope. Not going to crap where I meet. Right. You know, you know Hammett's daughter, Joe, uh, his second daughter, who he was close to, uh, in her book on her father's, related that Hammett himself told Joe a story. And he, uh, she quoted it in full her, from her memory. And she said, Hammett told her that as a boy, he wanted to find the ultimate truth, how the world operated. And here it was. He said there was no system except blind chance. Wow. You know, wow. It, 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 the Flitcraft story reflects Hammett's view before he became a Marxist. Now, he became a Marxist in 37. And although critics have tried to write back into his books a Marxist communist sensibility, there was none. Yeah. There, there yeah. really was none. And... Um, he really suffered after he finished his last book, which I believe was The Thin Man. And he, he, he just couldn't get it together. And it was being, in, being pulled into the Communist Party as a Marxist gave him another worldview that helped him survive. Mm. Close out our session with talking a little bit about the Glass Key film. Yeah. Which version would you like to? The 42 version, the Alan Ladd The 42 version. version. Okay. Um, can I interject one thing about the 35 version, which is totally not sure. having anything to do with, with Hammett? Sure. It's, it's strictly a filmmaking thing. 
I watched the, 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 the opening of it and I don't know why, but you know, it starts with the um, car accident. If you remember, do you remember this? It's uh, the guy that, that, um, that Paul refuses to get out of, out of jail. Oh yes, 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 yes. It is one of the most disturbing car accidents I think I've ever seen. Oh my. <laughs> and, and I think the reason it is is because I know it's 1935. I know that there aren't, there aren't any really professional stunt people at this point. You know, that's a whole thing that started, that's that, that grows as, as the years progress. And this car T-bones this other car. And it literally made me go. <gasps> oh my God. 1935. 1935. Cause you see a guy driving the car and you see the other guy driving the car. So there's actually people in this car, in these cars. And this thing T-bones this thing, and it just, it is, it just, you just go, wow, that, that thing really hit. And the only thing I can see at all that could possibly make me feel a little, because, you know, there are no seatbelts, there's no harnesses, there's none of this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is um, in the foreground where the car gets T-boned, there is a stack of crates. So maybe behind that is a pad. Yeah, yeah, if yeah. this guy got if this guy got ejected from the car, he would land into. Right. But I would just say it's on YouTube. Watch it. It is just yeah. you just go, okay, we I can tell we've come a long way. Yeah. <laughs> in filmed them yeah. just because of how this thing was filmed. It also matches the brutality of the world that uh Hammett wrote about. Yeah. 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 Archive Org has the 1935 adaptation, the 1942 adaptation with Veronica Lake. Um, and also the Orson Welles version and the Studio One version, which is quite good as well. But I, I want to talk. Watch that. I want to talk specifically about the 1942 version. Great. Uh, the adaptation was by Jonathan Latimer, um, who was also quite a interesting mystery writer himself. He tended to write more humor, humorous mysteries, uh, but he was very successful. Um, it had Alan Ladd as Ned Beaumont, Veronica Lake as uh, Janet Henry. Uh, Brian Donlevy as Paul Medvig and William Bendix as Jeff. Um, it takes the it it actually makes the political background a little bit easier to understand because it, it take because of Hammett's style it takes a while to piece the put the pieces together about what's happening politically. Right. And who Paul is and where, right. what is his what is his relationship to the political aspect of this uh, of this town? That's right. Whereas I think Latimer put that in the foreground right at the very beginning uh, to show you what that it avoids any of the ambiguity that's created by the novel. In fact, that's what makes the novel so great. The reader has to work out what the characters are feeling and why certain things are happening, whereas in a film. You can't really do that. You have to. You have to show. You have to make everything clear to the audience. Ambiguity right. can can't be allowed. So what they did is they they sort of soft boiled the novel. It doesn't mean that the violence uh, was diminished because there's the beating in the middle of the film is just pretty good. It's pretty, pretty good. It's pretty, pretty brutal. Good. And yeah. and the actors are brutal with each other as well. But it's more in the Hollywood style. You. You've seen this kind of film before. Warner Brothers put this, put these kinds of films together pretty easily. 
I think I think John Houston was better at being able to reflect that nasty style, you know. And then at the end, um, again, I'm sorry, this is a little uh, plot spoiler for everybody, but uh, at the end of uh, the novel, you're left. It's an upsetting ending mm -hmm. because Janet Henry asks Ned if she can go with him to New York because Ned has broken off his relationship with uh, Paul and he's leaving for New York. Right. And right. Paul comes in and Ned tells him that Janet's here and she's going to go with him to New York. And it just shatters Paul and he mumbles luck and then leaves. Well, the ending right. of what? the ending of the movie is like, what? <laughs> that they're goo goo eyes at each other. Paul comes in. And they say, oh, well, uh, Janice going with it. And he goes, oh, great. Yeah, well, you guys are a great couple. I'll see you. Wow, I'll see you. Well, not only that, but there's there's also a joke about it where he he, he shakes. Uh, I believe he shakes Alan Ladd's hand. And then he goes to shake Janet's <laughs> hand, like to say good. And he has previously given her an engagement ring. And he, she reaches out to shake his hand. He says, not that hand. And she holds the other one out and he takes the ring off and he goes, not with my rock, you're going away. Yeah, yeah. And and he almost with it's you almost expect him to be. I agree with you on this. You almost expect him to be whistling on his way out. Yeah, yeah. This is the woman that he said she means more to me than anything in my whole life. Earlier in the film. Oh, and throughout the book, I'm, you know, yes, we have a a, a feeling that there's a the, a marriage of power here. You know, if I get this senator elected. I will get her hand in marriage. But he says how much that that he wants her more than anything. Now, whether that's just lust or an honest to gosh um, affection, it's uh, you don't just blow that off. No. At the end. You what know, they did is I, they rounded the they rounded this tough novel into a happy ending. Well, Alan, because you're not looking at Ned Beaumont and Janet Henry, you're looking at Alan Ladd and Veronica Lake. Right. You want was them this, to get together. Was this their, it wasn't their first movie. Was this their, like, just like their third movie? So they had actually become a cinematic couple. Right. That people wanted to see and wanted to see. Right. Like get together. We had this gun for hire. And um, I think they made. Blue Dahlia, maybe, I think. Blue Dahlia. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but yeah, I agree with you on that. There are odd comic bits in the movie that you're right i think saying they rounded the noir edges is 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 uh is a great way to put it um that do just sort of come out of nowhere there's the whole flirtation scene between this thing with um uh beaumont and the nurse when he's recovering from right. his beating you know right down to where he you know he kisses her and she you know you almost expect it to go Mwah. yeah 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 you know and and it, it does sort of like if you've read the novel, um, you sort of, it, it sort of comes out of, they sort of come out of nowhere. Now it's interesting that, that you said that Latimer would write more humorous. Yeah. Lighter, uh, lighter, mysteries. lighter, lighter mystery. So that that's probably his hand. Yeah. There. I think so. You know, saying there's also an odd scene at the very beginning when uh, Alan Ladd's character, Ned Beaumont meets Veronica Lake and he can't stop staring at her. And obviously he's just 
smitten with her. It's just absolutely right. smitten. Whereas in the novel, he has a much more ambiguous reaction to her. I mean, at one point he says, she says, you hate me. And he says, eh, I kind of like you. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Well, and I, I will say this, um, given the, that scene that you said in the movie where he just, you know, he's obviously, you know, cinematically we see that he's taken with her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It lets me buy that ending a little more in the movie. I kind of don't get why she's going off with him in New York in the book. I will. I, I, I can it, tell you why. Okay. Because he's a gambler. He's willing, think to it's take, her, he's willing to take a gamble on this woman. But why is she willing to take a gamble on him? Because she doesn't have anything else. Her reputation is screwed. Her father is gone. All she, she doesn't have anybody to be with. And she doesn't want to stay in the town where Paul Madvig is. Right. Good point. Good point. And, 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 you know, he, he, they and he say likes like, her, they've been together and he, he, I mean, that's their dialogue at the end. They don't, they don't have this long engaging look at each other like they do in the movies. He's, he likes her, but he's, he plays his cards close to his chest. He's more concerned with his relationship with Paul. That's why he's staring at the door at the end instead of staring at her. He doesn't come back to her and make goo-goo eyes at her. and We're going to have a great life together in New York. I can't wait. No, he's looking at the door thinking, what, are, what have I lost? Yes. Well, you yes, don't know yes, what yes. he's thinking. That's what I think he's thinking. Right, 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 right. Well, I definitely think that, um, <clears throat> you know, we, we come back to the, uh, the, the, the love affair between two men. Yes, I, I think I, I do feel very much that uh, Ned Beaumont goes through all of that for his friend. Yep. And and then and then through chance. He ends up taking away the one thing his friend really wants. Yeah. And it's and again, it's that theme of chance and gamble. He's willing to take a gamble. Besides, he knows he knows what's best for Ned. He knows there's no way he can have a relationship with this woman. Right, right, with Paul. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. with he's, Paul. He, with yeah, Paul. He, so and you're right. In another you're right, sense, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. Again, he's he's doing something that he knows is better off for his friend. Right. So, in a, another another possible reason of taking a gamble is that he's taking her away from Paul. I like that. So she can't, so she can't exert influence on him. It's done and he'll know yeah. it's done. Right. Well, yeah. I don't even think it's a case of, 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 uh, exert influence on him. I think it's a case. He knows it's a bad match. Yep. It's like this will and not, Paul doesn't Paul, Paul won't. And Paul doesn't. Right. right. Paul will be unhappy. I can, I can, I can take a gamble and right. maybe this will work out. I know it won't work yeah. out. Alan Ladd is a good uh, Ned Beaumont and Veronica Lake, although she's more sultry than Janet Henry is uh, in the in the novel, is good. Brian Donlevy is adequate, I think, as <coughs> Paul Madvig. One of the uh, conflicts, one of the contrasts is that uh, between uh, Paul and uh, uh, Ned is that um, uh, uh, Paul was from the streets, the same way mm -hmm. uh, Ned was from the streets, mm -hmm. but you don't really get that feeling from brian donlevy that his i mean they they do some bits in there where he's playing with his socks and you know he he may have worn the wrong socks for the but you 
Brian Donnelly's just got too much. I don't know. He's got, he's upper class, you know? Yeah. But they also play him as a little goofy. That's true. That's you know, true. that, that business with the socks and stuff that it's almost, he, again, it's that, it's that humor that I don't think they needed. to. Uh, have uh, I, I see what you mean. Yeah. Cause you he know? throws the shoe at, at, uh, at, uh, Jeff, uh, when he's leaving after he's right. Him. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. So, and but, speaking uh, of Jeff, let's go to, to Bendix. Okay. Yes. Could we please the, yes. the guy who steals the entire, entire movie. movie Bendix plays Jeff, the crazy thug who is the enforcer for the rival of Paul Medvig in this town. And he's the guy that, um, uh, beats the shit out of, of, uh, Ned Beaumont until he passes out and then wakes up again and Beaumont tries to get out and then he beats him up again. And right. some of the descriptions of those shots of, of when he hits him, it's just, oh. And well, Bendix, the- Bendix plays him with such such levity. I mean, he says, hey, it's my little rubber ball. We're going to bounce you around a little more. Hey, buddy, he likes it. You see, you, you, you got to, because in the, in the initial uh, abduction, there's, a, there's another uh, goon with him. Oh, that's right. The other guy. And, uh, and that guy is like, hey, you got to you got to lay off him, man. You, I think he's had enough. No, no, man. He really likes it. Let, let me take it. Let me show you over here. And um, if I remember correctly, uh, you get the reaction shot of the other guy and you're hearing like the blows. Boom, boom, and, boom. Ooh, 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 yeah. of, of, of lad. And, you know, nowadays you, you would just see this guy being, you know, the, the film would be how much makeup and special effects can we get in this guy to make him look like he's right as it's each blow is landed. It's almost worse to see this guy reacting yes. like, you know, and this is a guy you assume has seen some bad stuff. Yes. And yet he, even he's horrified by yeah. it. Um, and Bendex just, he, he owns grasps that it. He grasps it. He, rather than playing him, his uh, Richard Widmark did uh, a, a psychopath, uh, in Kiss of Death, uh, yes, years later, but he played him one dimensionally. Bendix plays him as a full character. He's funny. He is a, a guy's guy. He's having dinner with his buddy. They're they're joking about food and this and that. Right, right, right. Who taught he, you how to cook? You know he that. Play, yeah. He he plays with Alan Ladd. You know he warns him. He's having fun with him, and then at the same time he's a psychopath. Yeah, he's just a nut. He's crazy. You know, and it's Bendix is so amazing in that part. There's that scene at the table where they're just talking about nothing. Yes. You know, you're a heel. Yeah. You know, come on, have another drink. Yeah, I'll have another drink. You're still a heel. Yes. You know, you think I'm going to tell you something, don't you? Right. And then when he turns on his boss. I know. Oh, I know. Isn't that incredible? You know what we got to do, don't you? Yeah. You know what you got to do. You know, and uh, I think yeah. those I think those scenes and the scenes and the, the book version as well were borrowed by countless writers later, including, I think, a, a British playwright by the name of Harold Pinter, who wrote a play called Dumbwaiter about two thugs who are waiting in the basement for a hit that they're supposed to do. And they I've keep, never seen. I know of it, but I've they never keep seen getting it. messages through the Chinese dumbwaiter. 
Wow. That just drive them crazy. And I think he was looking at William Bendix and many others and, and Hammett when he was writing this kinds of stuff, because a lot of his, a lot of his plays have long pauses. He, he orchestrates the pauses and he never tells you what people are thinking or feeling. And you always get this ambiguity behind everything. You know, it's just right. It's just one of those little influences that I think is interesting. Yeah. Well, it's it's a testament to to Bendix. Um, I think that he can play a part like that. He also plays. Is it Gun for Hire, where he plays Lad's friend and he's a little off? He's 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 shell shocked. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But then. But he just and, knocked this out of the park. Oh, so it out good. Of the but then you can see him in. Um, in um, the Bing Crosby movie, Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court, where he plays um, the comic relief. Yes. And he's hysterical. Well, he had a great, his great hit was Life of Riley. The television show Life of Riley. Right, 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 right. And he was so great in that. He's a great actor, unsung. I wish somebody would write a biography of him, but he really captured both the feeling of the uh, the novel mm -hmm. and and made it fit in the world. Latimer didn't get in there and soft soap any of those scenes. They're nasty and mean. Right. They, and he is that from the beginning. When he leaves the first time uh, with um, with Aurori and he turns back to the into the into the room and he spits on the carpet. Right. And it's not a what it's just he just lets it drop. Yep. And it, you know, uh, you just went, Ugh. yeah, <laughs> and yeah. and he said, because he hasn't said anything up to that point. I don't think. I think he's, if I remember correctly, he's quiet through that whole yep. first thing, and then at the very end, it's just like, yeah, onto the carpet. Yeah, beautifully done. But, yeah. Um, interesting. As side note on on that, if you go back and watch that movie, um, again, uh, we're t I'm going to talk a little bit about how movie times have changed. Uh, part of the escape that Beaumont does is he sets a mattress on fire mm -hmm. and Bendix and that other guy have to jump over that. I know that, that burning um, actual mattress, flames, actual flames from an actual start from scratch. Yeah. You know, and I just kept thinking, good God, they're going to get, something's going to happen here. They're going to get, you know, their clothes are going to get caught on fire or something yeah. like that. It was dangerous. And, and as an actor, you, you have to think to yourself, who's been on sets, how many takes? <laughs> Probably not very many. Was, yeah. was that a one take? Was that a two take? All right, that was great. Let's try it again. <laughs> no, I have a feeling they, <clears throat> unless a major accident happened, I think they just went right through it. Yeah. And yeah. again, that's the brilliance of the commitment of not just Mendex, but his, yeah. his, the other actor that, that, you know, I, I, are these flames higher than I expected them to be? Yeah. Well, I just got to, I got to do the scene. Yeah. yeah. You, <laughs> just, scene. you just cope with it. Yeah. But yeah, well, you, I think, I think Bendex is, is the standout of that movie. And, and it's, and the, the overall movie is fun. I enjoyed it a lot. Don't get it me wrong. It is fun. It is fun. But, but man, his performance is the standout. Yeah. Watch it. Watch it. Every time he's on screen, he's a hundred percent. 
Yeah, it's you a, know, it's a here's great my performance. buddy. Hey, it's my sweetheart. Yeah, let's go upstairs. There's a room up there I want to get you into. It's got small enough you won't fall over when I beat you up. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. I think Hammond. Now, I didn't, I, I couldn't come across any of Hammond's reactions to the films, but I don't think he really cared. He was too busy doing nightlife. And then when he got into the uh, uh, Marxism and communism, he was too busy going to other things than to go to movies. But, you know, you can find a great copy of this 1942 version of The Glass Key at archive.org and also a lot of original Black Mask magazines. Uh, none of the ones that Hammond is in, but there's still some cool, good ones. I also wanted to mention that the, the best biography of Hammond is Richard Lehman's Shadow Man. The official biography by Diane Johnson has too much of uh, uh, Lillian Hellman's editing to be of real great use, uh, although it is uh, well-written. Uh, I also read a fascinating book called Hard-Boiled Activist by Ken Fuller, which was all about uh, Hammett's uh, uh, political affiliations and his world. Uh, look to our show notes at paperbackshow.com for covers of the paperbacks and links to all their sources. Pocket Books did uh, originally publish the initial paperback novels um, in the 40s. The covers were somewhat abstract, but they were really designed well. I, I particularly liked the pocket 241 with the cover of Red Harvest that depicts a huge bloodied black hand holding a town in its grasp. Uh, the Dell paper paperbacks were the ones that really went crazy. Those were in the late 40s. Um, those are the ones that have the map of the crime on the uh, backside. Right. Uh, Dell 90, A Man Called Spade, is a wonderful cover of Span, Sam Spade coming up out of a, a stairwell. Uh, the artist isn't noted. But my favorite of the Dells is Nightmare Town, cover by Robert Stanley, uh, published in 1950. Uh, also later in the 50s, Perma Books did a series of Hammett novels in the 60s that were interesting, had traditional but uh, subdued covers. Penguin in the UK did a green cover all of their mysteries had green covers with the silhouettes of men and guns and corp corpses. Nothing particularly special. Random House, uh, their vintage paperback series, uh, uh, published uh, many paperbacks. They currently produce the trade paperbacks, which feature a sort of small collage of objects and photos that are relevant to each novel's plot. Uh, there was a wonderful Pan Books uh, paperback of... Uh, glass key that had the dog remember the dog that attacks him oh right and yeah, this yeah, yeah. big massive bulldog with two dice at craps in front of the dog <laughs> it's a great it's it's a great That's joke great. it's a great joke and i'm gonna That's make sure that funny. i have that cover That's i'll share that with anybody funny. um I'll, I'll, and although it's not a paperback series the library of america has a wonderful two-volume hardback set of Hammett's novels and stories. They're absolutely great. There you go. Well, that's the Everyman's. That's uh, the Everyman. Oh, you're right. Sorry about that. That's the Everyman. The Library of America are black. And, right, uh, they're, right, right, right. They're, they're archival copies. But they have all the novels, great introductions. Um, they're, they're excellent. Uh, as I said, you can get the films wherever you want. Uh, at archive.org and there's lots of fun. I highly recommend Dashiell Hammett. Uh, I'm really looking forward to reading Red Harvest again. Uh, that was his first novel. 
and that was about a, a, a the continental op coming into a, a a town that's completely corrupt and him i think they used that as the basis for kurosawa's film yojimbo yes later where he yes, plays yes, the yes. gangs against each other right i'm really right, looking right, right. forward to reading that we're going to have Jimbo if you get a chance, because that's just, Oh, it's a great film. I, I watched that just recently. Uh, Jessica and I watched that and it was just like, this is so good. I know. I know. <laughs> uh, I, I want to invite you back, Richard, uh, to complete the uh, triumvirate of uh, Chandler Hammett. And we'll do James Kane next time. Okay. That sounds good. All right. All right. That well, sounds good to me. I'd love that. My thanks to you for sharing your thoughts on Hammett and the glass key. And uh, are you good? Is there anything you want to say here at the end that you've maybe forgot to? I I think we've I think we've covered just about everything. I think uh, I want to thank you for having me on again, and I want sure. to thank you for for uh, encouraging me to revisit this book, which I hadn't read in a couple of uh, long time, you know, decades. I would think, and, and it was just such a pleasure to go back and great fun yep and uh you're a heel you're a heel <laughs> you're a heel i love you but you're, you're a, a heel, heel. yes yeah, right another drink all right <laughs> well that's our show today for you contact me with your questions or comments uh just look for the contact link at paperbackshow.com look for new episodes of the paperback show or every other friday of each month thank you everyone Wrong.